0: Hello and welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said, host on the channel. Today we will be talking with Dr. Danilenko, professor at Pace University in New York, research associated at Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, editor and author of several books on Slavic linguistics and philology. Dr. Danilenko is also editor of a new series in Langston Books, Studies in Slavic, Baltic and Eastern European Languages and Cultures. Today, we will be talking about Dr. Danilenko's recent book, From the Bible to Shakespeare, Panteleimon Kulish and the Formation of Literary Ukrainian, which was published by Academic Studies Press in 2016. Um, Hello, Andriy. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for joining us today. I would like to start with the cover of the book, which uh, can be read at different levels and from different perspectives. Uh, it includes some fragmentary lines from Kulish's translated works, and these fragments not only hint at those investigations that you offer with your publication, but um, um, those also concisely present changes that the Ukrainian language underwent through its formation. For those who study um, Ukrainian, for example, it would be interesting to examine orthographical and lexical choices that Kulish makes. Uh, What I mean here is accents uh, with which some words are provided, lexical and grammatical and spelling forms, which today um, could be considered um, archaic. Could you please tell us about the history and background um, of this publication?
1: Uh, First of all, Natalia, thank you very much for inviting me just to to speak about this book. Because as you understand, that's part of my life, part of my several years of work, right? And um, you're right, when you look at the book and
2: you see this uh, cover, honestly, if you tell the truth, I
1: spent some time just looking and searching for something which can represent uh, clearly what Kulish is or what Kulish represented at that time. And I was so lucky just to find this uh, folder, which basically you can just find in some archives in Ukraine, which is a combination of his uh, Cossack, Uh, Background with his uh, look for some European uh, future, for example. And I try just by the way, combine this picture, this wonderful photo actually, that's a photo of his, a real photo, uh, with a couple of uh, uh, well, copies of uh, his manuscripts. And you're right when you saw that his manuscripts are so interesting because all these letters, all these words have some accents which is untypical for, honestly. And he all his life used just to write with accents, not just because he was not sure how to pronounce it, but because he was sure that you need to know how to pronounce it exactly, because he was working on his specific, for example, literary standard of Ukrainian. And he was introducing not only words, not only grammar, but also how see it correctly and it's just wonderful and by the way on the cover i placed a couple of pages from his translations of shakespeare together with the bible if i'm not mistaken that was just it seems that that was a good solution i was just also given guidance by some editors at the publishing house
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, why Kulish, by the way uh, In Ukraine, some of his works are well known and, uh, But his uh, uh, translation activity To which your uh, publication is dedicated uh, Remains some area of uh, inquiries Probably only for scholars um, And I would say that his presence In a popular segment could be, <laughs> uh, could be better uh, Well, what about uh, his uh, figure um, in the West uh, is he well-known? Well, I wouldn't say that. So could you uh, please give us like a very brief description of uh, his persona and his figure as a translator and as a writer?
1: Well, uh, well, honestly, it seems to me that they don't know Kulish, not only in the West. Because I was so naive, and to tell you the truth, some 10 years ago I knew practically nothing about Kulish. And I did a mistake which sometimes we do, and uh, I can tell you that I'm a mature scholar, okay? But I started working on a book and started just writing an introduction mm-hmm. to this book. Mm-hmm. And uh, when writing an introduction, I wanted just to write a history of uh, literary Ukrainian, just covering several centuries. And then I suddenly realized, okay, listing all these figures in the introduction, I realized I know nothing about Pantelemon Kulish. As a writer, as a public figure, and something else, and I told myself, listen, first of all, that's a mistake. Never write an introduction to a book which you have not <laughs> completed. And I told myself, okay, do they know something about Kuleish in Ukraine? Yes, they already know about him, but in the West, it seems to me as yes, he's an obscure figure. Therefore, I I know only one and I mentioned it in my book, and only one monograph, which was published in 1983 by George Lutsky in Canada, with a wonderful survey, it was just a sketch of his life and literary works, a wonderful introduction into what I can just call studies of police. And basically, we, we know something, yes, in the West about police, but not enough definitely about his language, because it's, it's, it's quite an important, element for example in dealing with the culture of ukrainians right that's language and what they were doing what they just for example contributed to this in the 19th century and when one of the most well significant let's put it like figures in the 19th century in ukraine in both russian-ruled Ukraine, right? And also in Galicia, what we just call, for example, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. It was a kind of a bridge between these two parts of Ukraine and his presence in this landshaft is is astounding. And uh, you have just, just simply to look into, even if you deal with the Slavic studies, um dealing with, for example, Islamic Slavic, Russia, even Russia, if you're especially in Russia, you have to know something about Bentilmont Leech because he was a fixture in these, uh, for example, cultures they told you in both uh, the Russian and Austrian-Hungarian Empire.
0: Was he b- bilingual? Uh, he spoke Russian and Ukrainian? It, it, just oh, it, a, 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 some other languages as well.
1: <laughs> Likely, it looks like he was monolingual at the very oh. beginning as a true ukrainian yes he used to speak ukrainian to his parents to well to his neighbors because that was just a small let's put like this a village or something where he, they lived uh but he learned russian mm. he learned russian because he was just a citizen okay of the russian <laughs> empire and he was just to some extent yes Obligated just to learn Mm -hmm. the language because if you want to make a career if you have if you need just to make some Advancement, right? You just need the language and he was so gifted and talented that he learned this Russian language to the extent that he became first like a writer in the Russian language Mm -hmm. because his first literary works were written in Russian because he wanted just to become a writer writing in the Russian language and uh, basically he was good uh, in Russian but by the way it's extremely interesting just to look into his Russian and to find some Ukrainianisms in this language and you can find that but it was business as usual I think in the 19th century with all varieties
0: of Russian Is this case, well the the question is a little bit off the topic, is this case a little bit similar to Gogol or, or the situation is a little bit different? Uh, well, I think that perhaps to some extent you can just juxtapose him with a goggle
1: or goggle. Um, but I wouldn't say that they are compatible in this case mm-hmm. because uh, Kulish was uh, conscious he was aware of these problems he was taking over by himself. He was doing this consciously. In, ca- in the case of Goggle, it seems to me that was just something quite negative, subconscious. In uh, the figure of Gogol. For Kulish it was just simply a matter of uh, his life. He was not giving up. Uh, he was working, changing his views and doing something differently as for example was done by Gogol. And uh, honestly I'm not a great specialist in literary studies and for this, in this case perhaps I'm not the authority to tell you something about Gogol compared
0: with uh, Kulish but it seems that it's different that's different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, would you um, yeah, tell us a little bit about his translation background uh, was he a professional translator? well uh, the uh, the term of a professional translator probably is quite modern but still did did he have some profound background in um, english for example Uh, or in any other language that he was um, somehow uh, incorporating in his translations. Uh, What was his uh, um, education, so to speak, in terms of uh, translation uh, practice? Uh,
1: Well, that was his, uh, at the very beginning, it was his hobby, Mm -hmm.
2: uh,
1: because he... According to some attestations, he, was, he didn't want to translate, because according to him translating, something would not be beneficial for the development of a new standard of literary Ukrainian, because it would interfere into the texture, into the nature of this language. But subconsciously, I think that he was thinking about this definitely for years and uh, in some letters later, when he was already in his late 20s, for example, he wrote that, yes, I'm thinking about translating these classical works into Ukrainian because it would benefit, it would help us somehow create a new standard. And uh, he was gifted. Uh, person, yes, and he was a wonderful linguist, I guess, because he learned English, uh, uh, well, from, as we call these textbooks, yes, uh, on his own. He also mastered it to be sufficiently French and German, because he was using some, um, Works in uh, biblical studies, which were written in German. And for this case, he was just simply, it was an indis- indispensable part of his scholarship, let's put it like this. Uh, I also know, just according to some sources, that he used to take some lessons of Hebrew with uh, Boudouyen de Courtenay, who was at that time a very, very young scholar, but later he became one of the greatest structuralists. In uh, Slavic linguistics and especially in Poland uh, and the, at that time in the Russian Empire. So let's put it like this he was highly versified and he was a master of several languages which would help him, I mean, Panteleimon Kulish, make these wonderful translations from. English and from other languages including for example Greek with the help definitely of some of his friends and colleagues but still he was he was he was
0: good at this honestly he was a prepared translator Mm-hmm. So what was uh, his incentive to uh, um complete uh this these uh, translations which you discuss in your uh book so uh in what way uh, were, you, uh, were they useful for the formation of U- uh, literary Ukrainian
1: Well let's put it like this something uh like there was no literary Ukrainian mm-hmm. in the 1800s century, we had writers, but the language did not exist. So you can just call that it was just kind of a written variety of the language which was used by some people living in the deeper part of Ukraine, which was Russia, Russian-ruled, and also in the second historical part, which was Austrian-Hungarian-ruled. So, for Kulish, it was just a wonderful moment because he realized, I can create something new and I have to work diligently on this. It was extremely challenging extremely difficult for him. And he wondered, just by the way, his choice of the Bible and Kulish was not just simply random because he realized that you, for, a, for a new language, for a literary standard, you have to create both high style in, for example, biblical text and also the kind of a high style in circular text. So he was just simply determined, intended to combine these two well, facets or two faces of one and the same standard, which can be used in the 19th, centuries, the 19th century by Ukrainians. And this is why he just has decided just to combine the Bible with Shakespeare, and
0: Shakespeare is the best representative mm-hmm. of classical literature in the West. Well, yes, uh, I have this uh, quote from your um, uh, from your book about um, what, uh, uh, about uh, how Kulish uh, uh, understood Shakespeare. Um, Kulish called Shakespeare. Our father, native to all people and the greatest warrior from among the intellectuals, imploring him to take under the protection the unworthy Ukrainian people who lost in the steps were still praising the Cossack spirit and helped them thereby to get rid of their barbarism. So could you um elaborate on this statement was it uh, something that was connected with the status of the language or um Kulish was also hoping to um to implement some ideas and some morals taken from Shakespeare's works
1: uh, it seems to me that he came to understand uh, these well kind of a contradiction in his uh, well, in treatment of uh, the Ukrainian past at some point later, I mean, when he was perhaps in the, his 40s or 50s, when he, by the way, um, was obsessed with some works by the German literary and social historian uh, Georg uh, Gottfried Gerlinus, who was an authority in uh, the studies of Shakespeare, When Kulish realized that Shakespeare is something which is all human, if you're speaking about, well, that's kind of a positivism, if you're speaking about all human values, you have to reassess what you belong to, what your roots are, and how you can just combine, for example, this humankind with your vision of your village, of your town and city, of your people. And he just simply started just to, well, to look perhaps differently at the history of uh, Ukraine, in particular, the so-called myth of uh, the Cossack uh, movement of the Cossack contribu- contribution to the development of Ukrainian history. And he realized that, for example, as compared with Shakespeare, with his all human values, the Cossacks would achieve a... Uh, And nothing is compared with Shakespeare, according to him, because they would bring only destruction. And he definitely meant, for example, the war against uh, uh, the Civil War, yes, which, well, uh, took place in uh, 1648, right? And some years later in the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, according to, for example, to some Polish historians, definitely the Ukrainians were behind the, well, collapse of this state. So he realized that you have just to look differently at this Cossack myth. You have just to reassess this. It. And it's a good when you're reassessing trying just to give another interpretation of the past. And that was just something which some of his friends and colleagues and uh, people living in the 19th century in Ukraine, they did not like. Definitely when he spoke about destruction rather than creativity on the part of the Ukrainian Cossacks mm-hmm.
0: So um, does it somehow contribute to his controversy? Uh, you um, Mentioned a couple of times in your invest- in your in your publication that he was a very controversial figure so does this a controversy uh, stem from his uh, um, position as as, as a representative who speaks both languages, Ukrainian-Russian, or does this uh, controversy um, stem from uh, his idea of how the Ukrainian language uh, should, devel- should develop?
2: Well, uh,
1: sure, yes, he was a, an extremely controversial sometimes. And his whole life, definitely, that's just simpler a series of chain of some activities and uh, well, steps which would just simply amaze you and would, for example, just would leave somebody very, very unhappy. Uh, well, don't forget that, for example, he was obsessed. He was a friend over the national poet, of the national prophet of Ukrainians, Taras Shukchenko. They were together in some, well, well they were together ideologically Creatively, and then suddenly, already it seems to me, after the death definitely of Shik's uh, of excuse me, of Shevchenko, suddenly uh, Panteley one uh, debunked okay the the authority of Taras Shevchenko in his three volume uh, work entitled Historia Bossoidinieni Rusi, which is the history of the reunification of Rus, and at the same time. Debunking the myth, debunking the positive creativity of Taras Shevchenko, he praised, for example, uh, the Russian Tsar, including Peter the First and Catherine II. Then suddenly, for example, he was a friend, he had lots of Polish friends, and at the same time he blamed Polish nationalists, for example, for having caused the uprising in of 1863-1864. Okay, so you have friends. At the same time, you're just simply against, at the very beginning, against Russian uh, chauvinism, let's put it like this, and at the same time, you praise the Russian Tsar. And also, it's a very interesting moment in his life. He served at some moment for several years, it seems to me for three years, in the Russian office of spiritual affairs in Warsaw. Basically, he was in charge of some kind of spiritual censorship. Mm -hmm. And he was dealing with these affairs with these spiritual problems. Let's put it like this on a regular basis in Warsaw. And we believe that he would take the position of the Russian administration, actually. And that was the case. But on the other case, on the other side, excuse me, he also published several pamphlets appealing to Ukrainian-Polish understanding. So he was aware of these, well, friction and tension in uh, this relationship. So he was going from one point to another, from one pole to another pole. But only fools do not change their views. And he was a very smart person. He was constantly searching for truth. He was just trying to find solution to all these many problems faced by many Ukrainians, by the way, in the 19th century.
0: So your um, um, book is very detailed and very meticulous in terms of providing not only historical facts, but uh, linguistic analysis of uh, Kulisha's uh, language. Uh, How would you describe his language? Just maybe in a few words, because I know it's probably a very um, interesting and a very complex uh, topic. And um, as your uh, book uh, demonstrates, it's, uh, well, it will probably take a couple of hours to um, discuss all those changes but just for us to uh, get that sense uh, how he approached the ukrainian language and what he implemented into the ukrainian language and uh, um, what was his uh, uh, direction for for the further development just maybe maybe even um, a couple of um, examples would be useful for this for this conversation Lastly, uh, when
2: a student, for example, I would uh, put aside, if I come across, some
1: writings by a Kulisha <laughs>
2: because
1: I would not, it doesn't mean that I would not understand his writing, but I would not just simply accept them, because I was trained uh, based on a kind of a canon, yes, paradigm of uh, our literary standard, which is, let's put it like this vernacular, oriented. It means you don't use in your standard some high style, for example, elements and uh, fragments and components, uh, which for example existed perhaps in the history of your language, but you're right now obsessed with something which is very simple, which is very commonly used by all people. Uh, Kulish was different, absolutely. That's why perhaps we were not very happy when reading his text. But when you start analyzing and reading not only his text but also his translations, first of all, because translation that's a possibility to declare clearly your standing, to declare your language program where everything is condensed and you can prove and show what this language should be in the future. And his general idea, well, it's definitely difficult to explain because he was going through so many years and decades of his work, right? Creating this language program and language idea is very complex. Let's put it like this. That's a combination of our synthetic vision of the language from the point of view of its time and space. For him, the language used by Ukrainians should be based on the legacy of uh, what we call old Kievan rule, which is in approximately with the 12th-13th century. This is why you can find in his text lots of bookish words and elements which at first sight seem out of place or belong to some other languages, but not to Ukrainian. Some of them are the so-called Church Slavonic forms, some forms, you can just tell me that, for example, the word vozduch, which is, you will tell me that, which is the Russian word, right, yes. But according to Kulish, Vozduch also belonged to Ukrainian because it was introduced, let's put it like this, somewhere in the 15th century. It was used in some u- Middle Ukrainian texts. Why should you give up your word, your element, only because it was appropriated later by the speakers of your Russian? And also from the point of view of space, he was obsessed, well, he was oriented toward a kind of a synthesis of a different, let's put it like these dialects, yes, used by Ukrainians. It doesn't mean that he would take something from this dialect, from that dialect, pick up, in up something which is used in Galicia and then move it just simply, automatically, mechanically to deeper Ukraine, no he was screening for something which is typical of Ukrainians. He could find some dialectal regional elements, which you can double check, and you can find them also in the previous history or in the history of Ukrainian, which were used, for example, in the 14th or 17th century. And right now they are, for example, viewed as some dialect elements, but in fact not. So it seems to me that George Shavala was the first to call Kulish the greatest synthesizer of different styles and, uh, well, regional elements in his language program because definitely Kulish was just trying just to bridge different layers in the history of Ukrainian and different, for example, territories in the language which was used at in the 19th century. So he was, as I told you, an extremely complex it was an extremely complex version of the language, and this is why, perhaps, they did like it. <laughs> so neither, for example, the prepounders of Ukrainian idea in uh, the Russian-ruled part of Ukraine, and uh, neither other people in Galicia and on the other side of the Dnieper, so let's put it like this. Mm-hmm. So nobody would take him seriously, let's put it like this. On at face value. Later, definitely, they would, well, debate, they would find something extremely positive about his, for example, contribution and his literary output.
0: Yeah uh, the um, yeah, the picture that uh, you describe uh, in this in this book uh, is very dynamic in terms of um, collaboration of different translators or different writers and in terms of the vision of the Ukrainian language. Uh and it's interesting how the language ultimately uh took um, one direction uh, other than taking for example a different direction. So um <clears throat> I guess uh, what um, I'm interested in is um, uh, how other... Kulish's contemporaries uh, contributed to the development of the Ukrainian language because um, at the very end of your book um, you state uh, the following and I would like to um, <clears throat> to read this quote so quote um, His, meaning Kulish's uh, was a completely alternative program that being in, uh, compatible with the vernacular trends cultivated in Austrian and Russian-ruled Ukraine was doomed. Today one can only guess at the detours that literary ukrainian would have made had kulish's language program prevailed end of quote so um, what uh, other directions were taking place while kulish was uh completing his translations and um how um how did they contribute to the formation of that literary ukrainian that we probably have today why, um, uh, why did Kulish's alternative uh, didn't find its way into the Ukrainian, for example, uh, society? Well,
1: just honestly, when I finished the book, I came up with this idea and I could not go into detail in explaining uh, what kind of language program he has, because okay, when discussing his translations, well, his use of different language components, uh, elements, how he was switching from one style to another, register to another register. It was good. Yes. I, am aware of all these intricacies of his language, but still how you can just define exactly his language program. That's extremely difficult actually. And right now I've finished an article where I try just to expose only like, a, well, a structure of his program, but in, in a nutshell, the the problem in the 18th century for Ukrainians was the following. You had, in fact, two varieties, well, roughly speaking, right? Two varieties of uh, the read languages, put it like this, Austrian and Hungarian ruled Ukraine and the other in Russian ruled Ukraine. In Russian ruled Ukraine, everybody was oriented and based, let's put it like this, on vernacular, everything would Go only in this direction. And all writers, all for example, visions of new language was based on the understanding of very simple or let's put a plain language which we can call vernacular. In Galicia, or Austrian ruled and Hungarian ruled Ukraine, the situation was different. Because the defenders of the national identity, including the written language were we were priests, and if you're a priest, whatever you say, whatever you try just to convey to your parishioners, you always remember the high style language which you were trained, yes, which you learned when you got this education. Old Church Slavonic or Church Slavonic, that's the language which is your language and which you try to use when treating or when dealing with your parishioners they realized that the preachers were not very really happy with these language because it was too tough for them to understand them, And they were still just trying to simply, okay, to implement, just to add some elements. But the general idea that the well, ethnically speaking, the Ukrainians in Austria and Hungary, Hungary, they were just simply using the language which was oriented and based on Church Slavonic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Kulish was in between. He was sandwiched between these two visions and two paradigms, and he did not accept neither vernacular-based paradigm nor, for example, church Slavonic-based paradigm. Whatever kind of church Slavonic would speak. Let it be just Ukrainian recension. Let it be just simply 60% vernacular elements in these church Slavonic, but still, this is church Slavonic language. So Colleges just simply tried to just to synthesize, let's put it like this, everything which belong to both Peridance and even more, beyond these, and this beyondness just did not, they did not like it, because speaking, as I told you, about the Cayman rules, or these times of old rules. <laughs> How can you just speak about the 12th century and use it in your, for example, translation? Ivan Franko, the greatest writer in, for example, the western part of Ukraine, would not accept it. He would blame Kulish for using a strange, distorted, oldish, bookish language which nobody would understand. <laughs> and this is it. <laughs> and you can just find some people in uh, the Russian ruled part of Ukraine who would also tell you how is it possible in our village we don't use this language we do not understand but it's so naive that you are you are not supposed to use the language which is used in your village Mm -hmm. whatever you claim whatever you want to defend by telling this and kulish was just simple as i told you uh the first synthesizer the first person who would like us to bridge these parts of Ukraine in his intrinsic and his idiosyncratic vision, which unfortunately was not accepted, was not promoted by, uh, well, And Because it's, um, to some extent, Ulysses was too late when he finished, when he explicitly explained what he wanted. And he was too early when he started speaking about
2: this so he lost perhaps his moment and uh, it was just simply chronologically perhaps contradiction in his
1: vision but also do not forget that the
2: ukrainian and idea was promoted by those who were
1: oriented who were based on this vernacular idea in everything not only in language but also in literature not only in literature but in the intellectual life of everybody who were just simply thinking and defending the Ukrainian
0: idea. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, would it be correct to say that Kulish wasn't following any standards while translating or while writing in um, in his in his language in his version of the Ukrainian language? Um, what I mean here is that you just uh, described that uh, um, there are different dialects, there are different versions, and he was creating his uh, his own. Uh, however, uh, I remember there was one part in your uh, book where you speak. About about his reaction uh, to um, how his contemporaries responded to his translations, and one of the reactions was very negative, and he ultimately uh, burned one of his translations, and burned one of, uh, of the versions of his translations. Um, but um, um again uh, as you described um his uh, language is very complex and it's multi-layered and uh, it's very diverse uh and uh how um um how was he translating uh if uh, he was uh, playing uh, with all these elements and uh if we can take uh, this kind of angle uh, do you think that there is at least one translation that you would describe as very successful?
1: Um, well, I would describe all his translations very uh, successful <laughs> because you cannot just take in one translation from uh, the chain of translations. Mm-hmm. Because all these translations, they are steps, yes, mm-hmm. in uh, the crystallization of your language, of your translation studies vision, how you treat these different, for example, text, how you translate. You cannot just simply grasp this, oh, that's good or that's not very good. No. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, deep to, to look into the process itself, right? And to look into the progress of his translations. And uh, Honestly, honestly, the climax of his uh, translation program, let's put it like this, I would call a very interesting product, which it seems to me uh, no nation has ever produced. Perhaps they will come up with this. The point is that
2: when he finished translating the bulk of uh, okay, the New Testament, the Old Testament, together with his friends, and together with his colleagues, because not only with Ivan uh, Pudu, but also with Ivan Nicu Levitsky, who contributed to this translation, he realized that
1: that's not the, the level which you
2: need. He looked beyond this, and you would
1: not believe it he created a kind of he started working on a versified translation of the bible so he he was aware of this distinction of prose and versified translations in the old testament he knew clearly what books are written in prose what books are written in poetic for example version he didn't care about this he just realized that you if you want to bring the word of god to your nation to your people in addition to this biblical style high style you have to make it so transparent so close and friendly to them that he decided to translate everything in verse not only those books as we know for example which were written in poetic style that the language is poetic no he wanted to create everything and he started uh, translating and if I'm not mistaken he translated two books, mostly, most of them, that's the beginning of Old Testament. Uh, The manuscripts and the different versions, even varieties of these translations, are kept right now at the Czerniev Museum, Uh, uh, and they have all papers, and they have have all uh, drafts, they have all these translations uh, of uh, Kulish at this museum, and I took some photos and made some copies by the way of some uh, chapters of this and I can tell you that this is not a true or this is not a typical Ukrainian poetry mm-hmm. it's it's something which sounds very and reads as something very friendly and simple plain but on the other side it's sublime because he combines not only folkloric, not only folk song elements or something like, which might be very friendly, but also he introduces, introduces surreptitiously, unconsciously, perhaps sometimes some elements which belong to, for example, previous, as I told you, layers in the history of Ukrainian. But still, it's it's something which unfortunately we we do not know yet. We did not edit this. We did not prepare these manuscripts for publication, but in the future, since uh, members of this team working within uh, the Critica project together with Harvard University on the complete collection, yes, of Kulish's works, we, and I belong to this team, we think about preparing this uh, manuscript and preparing this versified translation, which would be just simply kind of, well, a boom in literary studies and in translation studies and uh, in, uh, well, in Ukrainian linguistics in mm-hmm. general.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, is Kulish's translation activity included into some like theoretical courses on Ukrainian translation studies?
1: Well, that's a good question, but unfortunately, I do not teach as you understand <laughs> in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So far as I know, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, they published some negative uh, views of uh, translation output of Kulij, uh, and specifically, in, unfortunately, in uh, the western part of Ukraine, because they
2: do not think that it might be
1: implemented and might become part of uh, serious translation studies courses in the literature of translation studies, definitely they use it. Definitely they analyze it. Mm-hmm. But again, how can you screen the text if you have already your standard of Ukrainian, of literary Ukrainian? Definitely you would not accept it because, as I told you, that was the third program, which was not implemented, which was not accepted by neither the East or West in Ukraine. But I think that. Uh, Kulish does not belong simply to the past of translation studies. He belongs to the future (laughs) of translation studies. And I think that they would use him as an example of uh, an extremely creative uh, work, which was constantly, consciously done by Kulish over the years, over the entire of his life, because he was a translator for all his life long.
0: So, in other words, uh, we can say that Kulish wasn't uh, uh, just a translator, but he was an artist, uh, who would use translation for creating uh, a new language or a language which is based on some fluidity and uh, some um, some uh, some elements that constantly change and uh, transform and um, modify uh, each other? Oh yes, you're right, and when you when you
2: you can treat him as an artist yes he
1: was an artist and this is why perhaps he loved translating in addition to his original works which well he definitely he was a writer he was a poet he was a journalist he was the first professional ukrainian writer and journalist by the way he earned his <laughs> living from his writing yes uh, articles essays reviews and so on so on but he was a true Artist of this and this is why perhaps he loved translation so much because you it's like just simply Experimenting on a regular basis with a language you cannot experiment like this in your original work mm-hmm. Believe me because mm-hmm. it's something very very you think about publication. Yes, who would take it for publication? But when you're translating That's for yourself that's for the future, that's for the benefit, for the sake of the whole nation which you work for. Because you would support this financially yourself, because as you remember, for example, he. Uh, his first, for example, publication of some translations of Shakespeare. He supported by himself. He financially just simply, I don't know how much he covered all these expenses. But he was aware of all these challenges, and he was eager not only to translate but also to finance mm-hmm. yes these projects because he believed that his translations would be appreciated, would be. Screened from the point of view of the benefit and the future of the Ukrainian nation, nation, and he is right. Actually, yes, Uh, this is high time right now just to get back to his contribution and to place him in the context not only of the creation of literary Ukrainian, but also in the context of creation of some other literary Slavic languages. Definitely, they have different roads different paths let's put it like this and it's extremely interesting just perhaps to find some similar approaches perhaps they have in some other cultures of slavs that's for example for the future i hope that people uh, would uh, go in this direction just trying just to project what was done by a onto what you can just find in some other slavic nations and cultures Not only, for example, in such big cultures as Polish and Russian culture, because definitely they have different versions, different languages, which are based on different principles. But you can look around,
0: you can look beyond these big, too big, for example, brothers, let's put it like this, of vernacular-oriented Ukrainian culture and language. Is your current project in any way connected with um, this Aqualicious project?
1: Well, to some extent, yes, because I am an editor of a volume or a couple of volumes in this project, uh, which I mentioned, over the publishing house Critica and Harvard University. We're working on colicia uh, translations of Shakespeare. Also, I um, plan to edit and comment my own volume on uh, some biblical translations. Mostly poetic
2: by the way, mm-hmm. which I mentioned. That's that's my uh, cup of tea
1: for the future. But definitely, that's not all I have right now. That's only about kulish what I told you, because I have some other, uh, for example, plans. I just, by the way, submitted manuscript of a book to Muton de Gruiter, which I edited together with a colleague from Japan, but which is not about kulish mm-hmm. It's about Slavic in the language map of europe that's about typological and aerial studies so to some extent colleagues that's kind of a hobby that's my oh that's i will put it like this, that's my ukrainian part of my uh, eye because these aerial studies and slavic in the language uh, map of europe that's my let's put like this american part of myself because that's slavic studies is different but always i do remember how you can connect them and uh, I'm just trying just to reconnect the Slavic studies with the Ukrainian language with the Ukrainian culture and uh, everything which is connected as well mm-hmm. to
2: Gulish.
0: Well, um, I wish you uh, good luck on these uh, new projects, and uh, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation, and thank you so much for your very meticulous, very detailed um, research, which uh, gives an excellent idea of how the Ukrainian language was developing and how it could have uh, been developing at this point. And um, again, um, I greatly enjoyed your uh, publication, and uh, it's not only um, a profoundly written it's uh, uh, very interesting to read uh, this book because there are <laughs> yes. so many there are so many characters <laughs> that um, yes. uh, you learn and about. Thank so, you very much for having me today. And I think that we have just, we
1: together by joint efforts can spread the words about good words, positive words about Kulish, about the Ukrainian language and about this wonderful culture which is part of world culture and civilization. And we have to look into together in the
0: future, likewise. So today we were uh, talking with uh, Dr. Nelenko about his publication From the Bible to Shakespeare, Pantelimon Kulish, and The Formation of Literary Ukrainian. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for listening to new books in literary studies.